the Bavada at Odds podcast. My name is Seth Everett. I'm joined by the head odds maker at Bavada, Patrick Morrow, as we break down the latest odds in all the major sports. NFL week to week as the playoffs are upon us, we'll break down the latest odds plus the futures. It's the Bavada at Odds podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Blitzcats, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast. We're officially in 2021. That's right. We're in the new year, and this is the best time of the year. Like I talked about it last week, we know who won the Heisman, and we'll reveal it. Closer to the end of the show, we'll talk about the national championship game between Alabama and Ohio State, but let's start with the NFL playoffs, the wild card round. Let's start with the AFC playoffs. Ed, I'm going to bring you in here. Which higher seed in the AFC is the most trouble? I think the Titans are the highest risk. I mean, they're playing a team like Baltimore. I mean, they have the same record as the Ravens. Obviously, the Ravens had a more competitive division, and so they didn't uh, you know, win their division, and that's why they're the road team, and that's why they're the wild card team. But you, if you look at the other games, I mean, Pittsburgh against Cleveland, Pittsburgh, I mean, almost beat Cleveland without Ben Roethlisberger, T.J. Watt, Cameron Hayward. So things look good for Pittsburgh. The Bills are the Bills are a tough team. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's very clearly the Titans. Well, according to Bovada Sportsbook, the Ravens are minus three on the road versus the Tennessee Titans. I'm kind of surprised by this. You know why? Because the Tennessee Titans beat the Baltimore Ravens last year in that divisional playoff game. So I felt like people would say the Tennessee Titans have the Ravens number and they're playing at home. This is kind of an interesting spread, in my opinion. Can Lamar Jackson finally get it done? Because he has definitely struggled in the playoffs in the past. You know, I I think, I mean, this is a guy who's a former MVP, who's been underestimated a lot in his career. To be honest with you, I mean, he's a guy who's who's mobile. You know, he's kind of a guy who's hard to beat. Um, These are two teams that had a good matchup last playoffs. So, I mean, it's going to be tough. I mean, these teams know each other, you know, being AFC um, opponents. I, I could really see the Ravens winning this game. I mean, r- remember it was only a year ago that the Ravens were, I mean, at this time last year, the Ravens were the favorite to be the Super Bowl champion. Absolutely. They went 14-2, and two, but they ran across the Tennessee Titans team that was just hungry. And Mike Rabel had that team playing just lights out last year with Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry, that He was a man possessed in the playoffs last year, and he continued it during this regular season as well. I mean, he rushed for over 2,000 rushing yards. Amazing, amazing feat for Derrick Henry. But I agree with you. I think the Ravens have the best chance at pulling off the upset if we're looking at the AFC teams. This is going to be the most competitive game. How about the Steelers and the Browns? I mean, Kevin Stefanski is not going to be coaching. Uh, He's also an offensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns. The fact of the matter is is that Cleveland didn't really look that good against Pittsburgh when they played the regular season ending. I mean, Cleveland was playing for something, Pittsburgh wasn't, and Pittsburgh made it a close game. I mean, it 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 came down to really the last 
driver too. And, you know, uh, now now the Steelers are going to be rested with Roethlisberger. You know, Watt's going to be rested. Hayward's going to be rested. This The Steelers team is going to come in much healthier than last week, and they're going to have their guys. And I see the Pittsburgh Steelers winning this game, and, you know, the Steelers are at home too. So, and, and, and really just historically between these two teams, the Steelers have had the Browns number. And with all due respect to the Indianapolis Colts, they've had a great season, and Jonathan Taylor has been running wild over the past six or seven weeks, and he had over 200 yards in Week 17. That offensive line for the Colts is playing very well, a lot better than they were in the beginning of the season. That defense deserves a lot of respect, but I just don't think that Phillip Rivers is going to be able to go down to Buffalo and pull out this win against the a team that I don't think anybody wants to play right now. And uh, we all know the the season that Josh Allen has had, and they're just they're putting up some great offensive numbers. We knew it was a good defensive team, but Buffalo's offense has, has caught up this year. Let's go to the NFC playoffs. You know, obviously we've got a lot of interesting matchup. We've got the, the Saints, number two, against a team that barely got in, number seven, Chicago Bears. Then we've got the the two teams that know each other very well from the NFC West, the, the Seahawks versus the Los Angeles Rams. And then we've got Tampa Bay Bucks on the road versus Washington team that won the NFC East division. Which lower seed do you think has the best chance to pull off the upset this weekend? Are you going with the obvious choice here? Yeah, I think the obvious choice is the Rams beating the Seahawks. I mean, there are there were a few concerns with the Seahawks. I mean, you have to think, you know, the Seahawks defense is not that great. I mean, despite having a great offense. You know, Sean McVay is a great coach. I mean, he's 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 a star coach in this league and I mean he's gonna have his team prepared for this game. You know, the Rams have won in the playoffs with Goff. I mean, this is this is not a Rams team that's, you know, inexperienced with playoff success. Um I have to say the Rams being the Seahawks is the is the most obvious choice. But I don't think Jared Goff is going to play in this game. I mean, he's had surgery, so it's going to be John Wolford, right? I, I, I was under the impression that Goff was going to just sit out week 17 and then he, you know, the surgery, he'd be back by the playoffs. All right, so we're it's still, obviously, it's still up in the air right now who their starting quarterback is going to be and. Los Angeles Rams have had, you know, a great defense this year. But I just, even if Goff plays, I can't buy the Rams. I really can't. The, the Seahawks are the better team. They really are. I mean, their defense has also been no slouch here in the second part of this year. And it's just, I think the Seahawks look like a more complete team. And I'm just not sure that the Rams are going to be able to keep up. I think this is going to be a very low-scoring game, by the way, because... The Rams play good defense, and the Seahawks, once again, they've they, they've played great. They've held teams to like, you know, seven, ten, fourteen points over, you know, the past like I would say seven or eight weeks. But I can't go against Russell Wilson here, and Bovada has the Seahawks minus three and a half at home versus the Los Angeles Rams. Are you not buying the Bucks? I mean, the Bucks are on the road. They are a lower seed at number five. I mean, they seem like to me, they seem like the obvious choice to to beat Washington. Yeah, I, I don't see how the Washington football team upsets the Bucks. I mean, just you look at the quarterback matchup in this game, and you you can that pretty much says the whole story of this game. 
this nice story that Washington has had this year. You know, they're, they've got a great defensive line. Chase Young is playing a lot better in the second half of the year. Obviously, Alex Smith is, has led the charge here. It was a disgrace the way the Eagles lost that game to Washington, and, and the Giants can be irate about it, but I don't want to get into that. We're talking about the playoffs. You're not giving Washington any chance at all, even though it looks like maybe the Bucks won't have their, their top receiver and Mike Evans. You believe in this all-star team right now, right? Yeah, I, I mean, the the Bucks have been playing good football. I mean, you got a veteran quarterback who's been in this types of situation. I mean, this is this is the time that Brady shines. I mean, when the playoffs, I mean, we used to talk about with the Patriots how, you know, we, we always talk about Tom Brady, you know, when when it's playoff time and at the beginning when we do our predictions and now it's starting to get playoff time and now it's now it's time to start talking about Brady. Yeah, this is when the real season starts for the Bucks. This is what they signed up for when they brought in Tom Brady, when they brought in Leonard Fournette, when they brought in A.B., who played very well in Week 17, by the way. This is their time. This is their time to shine. This is the reason why Bruce Arians assembled this team. Hopefully it's going to pay off. And the Bucks are on the road, and Bovada has them as uh, minus 8.5 versus Washington in this game the last matchup I wanted to get your thoughts on Saints Bears Bears are kind of like one of those teams that that barely got in that a lot of people believe shouldn't have been in because they they've beaten some pretty bad teams leading up to it and we all saw when we uh, when they played against a real team like the Green Bay Packers in week 17 how bad they look do you think the Bears have a shot here with their defense, with the running game going a little bit? Do you think they have a shot against the Saints? Because, I mean, New Orleans has some injuries. I think this Bears team is a little cursed. And to be honest with you, I don't think I don't think Mitchell Trubisky is, gonna, is, is a quarterback that can take you through the playoffs. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter is that the Bears have played well enough to get into the playoffs, but... I mean, really, they're they're riding on the coattails of basically the NFL wanting to expand the playoff picture. I mean, they, you know, a year ago they wouldn't be a playoff team, and and and, and the Bears have a track record of just blowing it in the playoffs anyway. So I, I I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put my confidence in Mitchell Trubisky. I'm not gonna put my my confidence in Nagy, and I'm I'm gonna go with the favorite in this game. Let me ask you this question. I, I just want to hear your thoughts, and then I'll I'll dive into it. If the Chicago Bears lose to the Saints this weekend, do you think they should just blow it all up? Should they fire Matt Nagy, Ryan Pace, and, and let Mitchell Trubisky walk? Fifth-year option hasn't been picked up, so all indications point to uh, Mitchell Trubisky signing elsewhere. Do you think the Bears will be looking for a new head coach and a new GM as well? Well, I, I, I let Matt Nagy, you know, maybe get his quarterback. I mean, he missed on, you know, they missed on Trubisky. Let them go and get, you know, one of these guys. I mean, they're not going to get Zach Wilson or Justin Fields, but, you know, maybe, you know, a guy like Kyle Trask will be available to them. You know, maybe Trey Lance will fall and that could be an option for them, uh, you know, being a small school guy. So they're, there are options for this Bears team, um, you know, to draft a quarterback because I think, I think that's really that's really where their weakness lies. Man, I mean, if I was an employee, I would love having you as a boss <laughs> because 
<laughs> we're not even talking about football. We can talk outside of football. I think you would give second, third, fourth, fifth chances, and I would just, I would love to work for you, Ed Hunt. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. I'll, I'll sign on the dotted line because I know I'll have a job for the next 50 years of my existence. Yeah, well, well I, think, I think with this podcast, I mean, it, you know, we listened to some of these first podcasts that we did and, you know, you heard me on these and I, I, I wasn't nearly as good as I am now. So I, 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 I'm very much a believer in the development. I mean, I think when you have a tenured coach, I think what it gives you is it gives you an opportunity to get aggressive. You know, I, I think it, I think that's really what it was. Is you see Mike Tomlin, he's one of the most aggressive coaches in his in his coaching style in the NFL, and it's because he knows the Steelers are always going to have his back. You know, the Steelers aren't going to fire him if he takes risks, and he takes these calculated risks. I think it gives you a big advantage, and you let you got to let your coaches learn from their mistakes. It's just there's so much in and out and i think i think it's you know because nfl is such a winner take all system i think that's why you see so many coach firings is that you know they just realize this coach isn't going to take us to the super bowl let's get another one and get another one and get another one until we can get our guy but i really believe in finding a good guy and letting him learn from his mistakes get some experience because experience matters in coaching i mean bill belichick didn't succeed his first time as a coach in the nfl Here's the reason why I think Nagy won't get a shot. I think if he loses this game, I think Pace and uh, and Nagy are out. It's because he did a disservice to himself. When he took that job with the Bears, he won right away. So the expectations rose through the roof. The fan base, the franchise, they said, wow, we got Matt Nagy. In the first year, he led us to the NFC North title. We got into the playoffs. We've never had this before in a while. Nagy seems like the magic man. We hired the right guy. We hired the Andy Reid coaching tree. We hit it big. So the expectations rose. I realized that that defense carried the day, but it doesn't matter. He won. And then in the second year, just everything fell apart. Everything that could possibly go wrong. And the most important thing, you saw the quarterback regress. You saw somebody that the future that you had high hopes for, you traded up for him when you had the third overall pick and you moved up to that second overall pick because you thought the 49ers might take him, but they were bluffing. So Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy, they got fooled. They went all in. You know, they drafted their guy, their quarterback, and he was supposed to be this big thing. It wasn't supposed to be Deshaun Watson. It wasn't supposed to be Patrick Mahomes based on how the Bears had them rated, they went up to get Mitchell Trubisky when they had the chance to draft Watson and stay put or draft Patrick Mahomes, right? We know how that story has developed. They got it wrong. And obviously, and they didn't put a good product on the football field last year. They had that winning streak and then they went on a huge losing streak. And then I give Nagy credit for pulling them out of it. They've played against some really bad teams but they got into the playoffs regardless of it but I think if they don't have a good game against the Saints if they get blown out by like 30 which is a huge possibility I just think you have to cut the cord because it's not working because those three guys they're kind of tied together do you understand what I'm saying so you kind of just blow it all up and if you draft a quarterback in next year's draft you go with another guy, with another head coach, and another GM makes the pick. I just think it's kind of, that system is broken. 
It's not the fact that Nagy's a bad coach. He's going to get another shot, obviously, because it's a, a retread in the NFL. We're all about second chances. I just think that there's no way he can keep his job. I think it's highly likely that the Bears will will move on. And by the way, this week it's going to be a tall task for the Chicago Bears because uh, they're facing off against the New Orleans Saints, and the Saints are at home, and Bovada has the Saints minus 10 in this game. So it already shows early in the week that, uh, you know, it's a huge, huge spread, which I'm sure is going to get even bigger. The expectations rise, and then you're kind of a hostage of your own making, of your own situation. People expect greatness from you. They believe that you're going to take them to the promised land, that you're going to take them to the Super Bowl, and Nagy hasn't done that. And you know, if he was going to take the team to like eight and eight, and then nine and seven, then you know ten and six, it's like gradual improvement, and that's what you know Bill Belichick has done, and that's what Mike Tomlin has done, and those guys have won Super Bowls, right? Uh, Nagy is is going to get another shot, but I don't think it's going to be with Chicago. I wanted to get your thoughts on John Elway stepping away from the GM job. He's been there for ten years as the general manager of the Denver Broncos. It seems like he's going to move up into a higher role. I mean, you're right. Denver is not going to cut the cord because it's John Elway, but it's going to be somebody else that, that's going to be hired as the GM. You know, I, I live in the area, and I, I, I know the I know the culture, and John Elway is, 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 a, is a football god in Denver. Um you know, I mean, he's 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 a big deal in a lot of areas. I mean, he's got car dealerships. You know, he gives out his name. You you know, you go to the steakhouses. You know, you, you obviously he's the GM of the Broncos. He was a great quarterback. Um, you know, he's very involved with the philanthropy. He's even involved with the politics in some ways. You know, he's just he's just a big deal in Colorado, right? And you know, and and, and I just don't think the political power of of John Elway can go away and that's why they won't fire him i think he'll kind of be the ceremonial you know decision maker you know but 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 the fact of the matter is is that they need someone who's a little bit more of a scouting background and someone who can find quarterback you know i i give them credit they got drew lock in the second round and i think he's played like a second round pick i think he has but what do you give him credit for for being an average quarterback or we knew who Drew Locke was all along. I mean, well, let's you're, pre- be you're preaching to the choir, Alex. I mean, I was the person around. De- I, He's I, been inconsistent. You're preaching to the, cho- you're preaching to the choir, Alex. I, I've. I mean, I, I'm. I'm. I'm trying to be diplomatic here with Drew Locke. I, I didn't think Drew Locke would be great. I mean, you know, you look at his tape in Missouri, and sure, he complete a lot of long passes, and he has. Forget about his tape in Missouri. Look at his tape in Denver. I know it's a bit incomplete, but there's no way that you could tell me that. The new GM coming in there would say, yeah, John, I loved your pick of Drew Locke in the second round. We're going to roll with him in 2021. I don't think Vic Fangio is going to say that because, you know, Fangio got another shot. He got another year, an extension, basically, in 2021. But if this team has another losing record, Fangio is gone. Fangio and the new GM have to be on the same page. We don't want Drew Locke to be the starting quarterback. I need somebody else to win because I still have a pretty good defense. Drew Locke is inconsistent based on his Denver tape. There's one game that he's throwing like three or four touchdowns. There's the next game that he can't 
He can't hit a wide open wide receiver. He's struggling with his accuracy. He's throwing picks. It's the same thing we saw in Missouri. I just, I don't see that there's any hope for Drew Locke in Denver. If I come in there, I put him on the bench, I, at least I bring in a veteran and make him compete. There's no way Drew Locke gets that job. If you don't draft a quarterback early, then you've got to bring in competition and see if Drew Locke can handle it. Make him tough it out. I mean, we've seen Trubisky get a little bit better. He came back in. He's played well you know, over the last like four weeks of the season. Do the same thing with Drew Locke because right now, he's not the future for the Denver Broncos. And that, I don't live in Denver, but from where I'm sitting, there's no way in hell if I'm a head coach or a GM, I'd roll with Drew Locke in 2021. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, this is the reason why. I, I do th- I do think that they could give him a second a second season, and I, I have a feeling they will. But I, I do think I do think there might be an opportunity. You know, they're going to be one of the higher picks, and this is a deep quarterback draft, and especially in the first round. I mean, if a guy like Trey Lance is there, I mean, you got to pull the trigger, right? I mean, you got to take the risk, right? I mean, what what do you have to lose, right? You got to, you know, and, and maybe like a guy like Trey Lance would be perfect with Drew Locke, because Drew Locke has played in the league and he can sort of, you know, teach him the ways. Although Trey Lance plays a very different game than Drew Locke. I mean, they're 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 apples and oranges. If there's a quarterback there, you take them. But they they got to do their evaluation. They got to do their homework. They can't just get they can't just draft a quarterback just to draft a quarterback. And that's what they've done in the past twelve years. And that's why John Elway is not going to be the guy running the team day to day. The best thing that John Elway did was bring in Peyton Manning, and he won a Super Bowl. I just think the Denver Broncos need to go and and take that same path. Maybe Matt Ryan is available in the off season through a trade. Maybe Matthew Stafford is available through I, I don't I don't I, I think I, I would don't even go. know if that was John Elway that you know who I actually think played a big role in that the Rockies first baseman Todd Helton Todd Helton played uh quarterback for the Tennessee. University of Tennessee and obviously Peyton Manning is a Tennessee volunteer quarterback I think I think Todd Helton actually <laughs> deserves a Super Bowl ring for the Broncos <laughs> I would say take the veteran quarterback, try to get a trade worked out. I'm not talking about giving up a, a first-round pick. I think you can get a second-round pick or a third-round pick for Matthew Stafford because you know the Lions and the Falcons will be in the quarterback conversation because they've got a high enough pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. The Broncos are kind of out of it. I would take the that route. Go with the veteran because, again, Fangio is on thin ice there in Denver. He's got to win. He's got to show improvement. He's got to get into the playoffs. It sounds impossible because, I mean, the Chargers are going to be better. You know, obviously, I mean, the Raiders are still there, and we have the Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes, but that's the only way that they can compete. It's not about drafting a quarterback in the first round. I think it's about, you know, getting a veteran in there so you can win because Denver Broncos defense is, is pretty damn good let's talk about the other uh, head coaches uh, Black Monday Jets fired Adam Gase they actually fired him I think Sunday evening then the Jaguars got rid of Doug Marone and then the Chargers got rid of Anthony Lynn who actually had a winning record but couldn't win those close games out of those three jobs 
which one is most attractive to you? The Jaguars have the number one overall pick. The New York Jets have the number two overall pick. Well, the Chargers have Justin Herbert. So who's your pick here? You go you go down to Southern California and you work with Justin Herbert, who's proven himself in the in the in the league, and you build you build around him. You know, you you use that early pick. You know, you maybe try to get yourself a good offensive tackle to protect Justin Herbert. I think I think that's really where you go. I mean, I like the idea of you know maybe going to the Jaguars and you know taking Trevor Lawrence. And if you're an offensive guy, like you're an offensive mind, you're an Eric Bieniemy, you're a quarterback guy. I mean, I could see how you know someone could really like the idea of Trevor Lawrence. But the fact of the matter is, is that Justin Herbert is. I mean, he's he's way ahead of most second year quarterbacks that we know in in the NFL. And so you you have you have a quarterback in place. You have some some pieces on defense for the Chargers. You can add some pieces to that Chargers team and and become a talented, good, competitive, and maybe even Super Bowl knocking on the door worthy team. All right, Mr. Hunt, put your GM hat on or your owner's hat on. Who would be the perfect candidate? For the Los Angeles Chargers, who would be on top of your list to to become uh, the next head coach for Justin Herbert? You know, I, I'd go, I'd go get the Iowa State guy, Matt Campbell. I'd say, you know what, Matt, you did it, you did it with uh, Brock Purdy, and now we're going to give you an even more talented guy in Justin Herbert. We want to see what you can do with him. Did it at Iowa State? Yeah, I, I, I give him the job. Yeah, and and I think a guy like Matt Campbell will be able to build build a well-rounded team too. I love it. I mean, that's that's a great hire. I mean, the college coaches are the new fad. You know, we all know Kingsbury is having success with Arizona in his second year, almost got them to the playoffs. You know, the Panthers are in good hands with Matt Rule. Matt Campbell, I would say, hey, give him a shot. And I would say he would love to take that Los Angeles Chargers job. I love it. You know, we're not hearing Brian Dable, you know, Eric Bieniemy. We're not hearing, you know, Don Martindale. We're talking about Matt Campbell, who's probably the, the up-and-coming star in the college ranks. Why not go after him? So I, I don't love your second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Uh, we should give the Chargers a call. That that should be their leading candidate. Right I, I think I think we've agreed that I'd be a good boss for you, but you would not be a good boss for me. I wouldn't want you to be the GM if I'm the head coach. Absolutely, you'll be gone like after a year. <laughs> you know when I realized that I made a mistake and I gotta save my job. You know, you'll be out of there. I'll, I'll buy you a train ticket, a plane ticket. You know, I can I can send you all over the world. If you want to go to Australia, I'll buy you that <laughs> ticket, one way ticket. But you're absolutely right. I would love to work for you, but you wouldn't want to work for me. I'm I'm a pain in the butt. I think it's time to give Bianami a shot, and I would really like it maybe if he got the Jacksonville job and he did it with Trevor Lawrence. I think I think you know what he did with with Patrick Mahomes, you know, could be a very attractive job. I also could see Eric Bianami being a great pick for the Jets, and this is why you bring Eric Bianami into the Jets. And you give him someone like Zach Wilson, who's a lot like Patrick Mahomes. He, he can kind of sort of take what he learned from Mahomes and apply that to Zach Wilson. And I think that would be the best scenario for Zach Wilson, especially with the number two pick. So I like Eric Bieniemy for both, both of those jobs. We're going to talk about Ohio State and the national championship game. 
with our first guest. We would like to welcome Steve Hellwagen to the show. He is a writer for 247sports.com, and he's been covering the Buckeyes since 1988. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing great. What's going on? Let's start with Justin Fields. Talk to us about how his gritty performance against Clemson, you know, talk about that. Yeah, that was a pretty amazing uh, performance for him, and he really needed it. When you think about uh, their last game against Northwestern, he threw a couple of interceptions and, and really wasn't sharp, and some of that had to do with Northwestern's defense. Uh, the Buckeyes finally just reverted to running the football with Trey Sermon, and he picked up 331 yards in that game. And going into this game, I think there was a lot of sentiment that uh, Justin Fields needed to have a good game against a good quality opponent because those had kind of been in short supply. All of his interceptions as an Ohio State player, eight of them going into that game in the, in the previous two seasons were against ranked opponents. There was a little bit of skepticism. Is he really going to deliver on the prime stage? And not only did he deliver, he got injured in the process and just kept right on delivering. So <laughs> it was uh, uncanny. You know, he took the helmet to the lower back uh, from James Skowski. And on review, Skowski was ejected from the game. And we don't know if it's bruised ribs or a kidney issue or hip or if it's a cracked rib or what it could be. But it was obvious he was in pain. He said that they gave him a shot for the pain there on the sideline in the tent. And he came back out there. Uh, you know, he went off for one play. He got treated during the timeout after the touchdown. And he jogged back out there. I'm sitting in the end zone taking photos. And the referee, the white hat, asks him point blank, are you okay? And it's obvious he's not. He's limping as he's running out onto the field. He takes the snap, rolls to his right, throws a perfect strike for a touchdown, and then goes into the tent and gets uh, treated, and then just goes on with the rest of the game as if nothing had happened. So I think he earned a lot of respect from a lot of people uh, with the way that he came back and finished that game. And as I said, probably had his best game as an Ohio State player, uh, 43 yards rushing, 385 yards passing, and uh, six touchdowns, tied the overall Ohio State school record for touchdowns in a game certainly a bowl record as well for Ohio State in a bowl game. The 385 yards is a uh, record. His total offensive yards are, are a record as well for a bowl game for Ohio State. Now, uh, I say this tongue-in-cheek, the goal is to break those records and set new bowl records when they play uh, Alabama on Monday, but uh, I know it's going to be much more difficult. What's been the key to the, this team's success this year? Well, you know, you go back uh, obviously, the pandemic hit everybody the same. There was no workouts, or there were very few workouts in the spring, and teams were limited with what they could do in small groups for much of the summer. And then uh, preseason camp, you know, gets going, and then they canceled the season basically on them. About the third day into camp, they said, oh, don't bother putting the pads on because there's no season. That caught everybody off guard, and uh, I think uh, you know the Big Ten was trying to be cautious with that, and the other conferences, SEC, ACC, Big 12, plugged ahead, and when they saw the success the other conferences were having in staging games, I think the Big Ten, obviously, a lot of grassroots effort by the parents at Ohio State. Uh, Justin Fields himself started a petition drive that had over 300,000 online uh, signatures to get the Big Ten to reconsider. And all of this brought them together. And I think that's what's been maybe the underlying story of this is that uh, they, as a team, as a football program, fought for this 
opportunity together as a group, they and their parents, and, uh, you know, got to finally play the season. Yes, it was delayed. The Big Ten didn't start till late October. They were only going to play a nine-game season. Unfortunately for Ohio State, they had to cancel a game at Illinois because they had COVID issues on their side, and they had two games uh, at Maryland and at Michigan canceled by their opponents because they had COVID issues on the other side. So at the end of the regular season, they'd only played five games. Everybody was going to try and play that last weekend, and obviously we know the Big Ten approved a waiver to the rule to allow them to play in the championship game. They had to rally from behind, beat Northwestern, and then you get into this grudge match with Clemson, you know, and and here's a team that, uh, you know, it wasn't about Michigan as much this year. They had the Clemson score up on the scoreboard there at the practice facility for everybody to study and look at, and a lot of hard feelings over the way that game ended up last year, and Buckeyes took out all that frustration we saw uh, last uh, Friday night down in New Orleans, just uh, battered Clemson from pillar to post, and uh, really made an emphatic statement that they deserve to play for the national championship. You know, it's been a slow build, but I think togetherness and fight, those are probably the two things that, uh, you know, they're not really football, they're not blocking and tackling, you know what I mean? It's not a great pass rush or a great this or that other, it's those intangibles that you have to have on a championship team. They had them back in 2014 uh, when that special group won the national championship, and we're seeing some of those same qualities kind of come about this year at Ohio State. Steve, there were some critics out there before the semifinal matchup that believed that Ohio State didn't deserve to be in the in the college football playoff because they've only played six games. Obviously, the, the game against Clemson uh, put those critics to, to bed. Well, I think long and short of it, it was the year 2020. Nothing has gone perfectly. Nothing went perfectly during the calendar year of 2020. Everything was turned on its head. And there were things that happened outside of their control that limited them to the number of games that they could play. The Big Ten dragged their feet and didn't start till late October. That was completely out of their control. It was against their will. They wanted to start September 5 or September 3, whatever their scheduled start date was supposed to be. Uh, they had three different incarnations of the schedule, so it's hard for me to keep it all straight. You know, if they had their druthers, they would have started seven weeks earlier than they did. And then obviously two teams canceled on them. That's beyond their control. Had And here's the thing. You know, people were up in arms. Well, they only played six games, and, and the Big Ten made a special concession for them and whatever. But here's the thing. Look at the teams that they didn't get to play. Maryland, they would have beaten them by 20. Illinois, they would have beaten them by 30. Michigan, they would have beaten them by 30. I mean, it wasn't like they missed out on playing a top-10 opponent where they could show their worth for the playoff. They did beat three ranked teams during the course of the season as it was. You know, it is what it is. I'm just chalking it up to 2020. We've got the two best teams on the field for Monday night. I am completely certain of that. In a flawed year, we have the right championship game. So I think that's all we can worry about. You mentioned Trey Sermon a little bit earlier. He's been on fire the the last two games of the season in the Big Ten championship game and in the Rose Bowl. Uh, Did you expect this from him at the end of the season? What has happened uh, at the end of the year? 
Well, I think for both he and Master Teague, the first three or four games were a bit of a feeling out process and trying to establish roles. And they did settle into a pretty good rotation uh, by series where they would take turns playing. But I think the bigger aspect of this whole running back situation was both of those guys got healthy. Master Teague uh, had an Achilles injury that was suffered on the first day of spring practice in a non-contact situation he suffers some sort of Achilles injury, which is usually a seven or eight month injury. And he was back ready to go for the start of preseason camp. And then Trey Sermon had missed the end of the previous season at Oklahoma due to a knee injury. And he was back in the summer working out and trying to rehab it and everything. So I think the first two or three games, those guys may have been running a little bit tentative because they weren't I mean, they're 100%. They're able to go out and go through a practice. They're able to run up and down the field and in sprints and do everything else, and they're, you know, nearly as functional as they were in past seasons. But you guys know the game of football. You're not in a groove until you're in a groove. <laughs> and when you're fully healthy, that's when you get into that groove. And that's what I think both those guys did. Unfortunately for Teague, it seems like he had a concussion he suffered in the Big Ten championship game. And that opened the door for Trey Sermon to get into that Northwestern game. And when the passing game was bogging down, they just realized we can run the football at Northwestern despite their nice linebacker group and a rugged front four. If we just keep running it at them, they can't stop it. Also, in my mind, what they were able to do against Clemson, figured that they would try and establish the run early and often, and that's what they did. They gave them a healthy uh, dose of Trey Sermon catching the football and running the football. And if you go back and watch that game, I watched uh, the, the, the Big Ten Network does a 60-minute condensed version where you just get to watch play after play. And to watch him one play after another carry two and three guys with him and bounce off guys and fall forward for seven or eight yards, that's the mark of a great running back. We knew Trey Sermon had that kind of talent in him, that kind of ability. He was just kind of bogged down, I think, in his time at Oklahoma, had some nagging injuries and different things. And if he's healthy, he's a difference maker. I mean, uh, Ohio State fans saw it. He scored a touchdown for Oklahoma against Ohio State in Ohio Stadium with Baker Mayfield. I think it was in 2017, I believe, when he was a freshman. Uh, Ohio State fans had already seen it with him. It just took a few years, obviously, and, and a detour, you know, for him to come back to Columbus and uh, show what he could do uh, in the scarlet and gray. And uh, two amazing games over 500 yards in two games. This is an Ezekiel Elliott run that he's on right now. If he gets another 200 yards against uh, Alabama, he's going to you know, break whatever it was that uh, Elliott did in that uh, 2014 run, you know, Wisconsin, Alabama, and Oregon. So uh, a lot of things are reminiscent of that. I mean, I go back to Ohio State beating Miami in the Fiesta Bowl uh, back in 2003, and also the Alabama game in 2015, the Sugar Bowl, where Ohio State is a huge underdog both games, and they just out-physicaled the opponent. They punched the bully in the mouth, and the bully did not have an answer. I think that applies really to those two previous games and the Clemson game this past week. 639 yards total offense, Kirk Herbstreet would say, against a Brent Venables defense, Brent Venables defense, Brent Venables defense. Venables' word comes up about 40 times a game when Herbie's calling Clemson, but uh, wasn't saying it so much this past uh, Friday, though. It seems like every year Ohio State just reloads at the wide receiver position. You know, new guys tend to emerge. 
Can you talk about the credit that wide receiver coach Brian Hartline deserves? He just seems to develop these guys every year, and uh, new guys come in. This year it's Chris Olave and, and Garrett Wilson. Talk about this group as a whole and what Brian Hartline has meant to this team. Yeah, Hartline obviously played for Jim Trestle here. It would have been roughly 13, 14 years ago in the mid-2000s, first decade of the 2000s, and, and uh, I think he played in both of the championship games that they played against Florida and LSU back-to-back years, and they lost. I know he definitely played in the LSU game, and he may have uh, gone pro after that. He played eight years in the NFL, and he played uh, with Miami and, and uh, was around a lot of good coaches and has been a sponge, you know, so to speak. You know, it was a few years ago they were getting ready to play Clemson maybe, and they wanted to replicate what one of the Clemson guys was doing, and Hartline was out of work. He was basically done with his NFL career, and he'd just been hanging around practice, and he said, well, I'll run a couple routes for you, and he replicated a couple things, and Urban Meyer took a liking to him and took him under his wing, and he became, you know, I wouldn't say a graduate assistant. I mean, he graduated, you know, years previously, but uh you know, just a, a guy that was kind of a program assistant, kind of hanging around. And then you had the situation with Zach Smith that came up in 2018 and the off-field stuff with Urban Meyer and Zach Smith. And uh, they had to let Zach Smith go. And here was Hartline sitting right there, you know, elevated by Urban Meyer to, uh, to take that wide receiver's position. And this is his third full year as an assistant coach. He's done a bang-up job as a recruiter and as a developer. Uh, he kind of put the finishing touches on Paris Campbell and Terry McLaurin and Austin Mack and uh, K.J. Hill, who are all in the National Football League right now, those guys the last couple of years. And then, uh, you know, right now bringing along Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. Olave, you know, had actually done pretty well as a freshman and as a sophomore, but uh, he took his game to an entirely new level uh, this season. Uh, Wilson as well. You know, what they were able to do against Clemson's defense, I know they were a little bit suspect against the pass, but, uh, you know, he completed three or four deep balls, Olave, Wilson, and Jamison Williams, who's been kind of slow getting into the mix, but he caught a deep ball touchdown in that win as well. Got the ball to the tight ends for three touchdowns, As you know, in addition to that. Them throwing the football is something that's got to give Alabama – which is ranked 77th nationally in pass defense, I think passing yards allowed, a little better in efficiency, which I think a lot of people put more stock in the efficiency number than the yardage number. Uh, but uh, I think that's got to give Alabama a little bit of pause because uh, Old Miss and Florida both threw for 400 yards against Alabama, and Fields certainly has the potential to do that if he's healthy, if the offensive line holds up for him. Who's been the MVP of this defense in 2020? Oh, my goodness. That is a tough question. I would say their spiritual leader is Jonathan Cooper, a defensive end, a senior, and he's wearing the special Block O jersey, a new tradition that they started this year that you see a lot of schools have a number that they designate for a team leader type guy on an annual basis, and that'll be a new tradition at Ohio State, and that's been a great tribute for him. And he's made enough plays. Uh, Haskell Garrett, my goodness, the defensive tackle, he's been fabulous. And this is a great human interest story. Back in August, he was involved in a shooting near the Ohio State campus and got shot in the face. The bullet went in, I think, his cheek and out. 
you know, he was in the hospital and uh, required surgery and some recuperation time. But uh, by the time the the season was starting in late October, he was back practicing and playing football, believe it or not, two months after being shot. He's been an inspirational story off the field and a a true difference maker, gumming things up, coming up the middle. And and, uh, he had a, uh, a pick six against Michigan State where he, stuck his big paw up in the air and pulled a ball out of the air and was in the end zone and didn't even have to run it back. He was just <laughs> he just caught it and was standing there and it was a touchdown. That was a tremendous play. He got some all American honors. Uh otherwise on that defense, Sean Wade, he got some all American honors. He's had a little bit of an up and down year in coverage. Had a couple tough games, Penn State and Rutgers maybe where he gave up some plays. Indiana Certainly with Penix, when he was healthy, uh, he made some big plays against Ohio State. And uh, Wade did give up a a touchdown or so, I think, this past week to Cornell Powell of Clemson. And it really kind of gives you an idea, you know, what's Devontae Smith, who I think everybody thinks is going to win the Heisman Trophy, you know, as the nation's top player and top wide receiver. What's he going to do in this game against Ohio State's defense? But if I had to pick one guy... Uh, maybe Pete Werner, the linebacker, Haskell Garrett, defensive tackle, Jonathan Cooper, defensive end. Uh, those guys have all, all played at a high level. The secondary has slowly gotten better. And, uh, I know that um, Lawrence had 400 yards in the last game, but Clemson completely abandoned the run once they were down 35-14 to 14 at halftime. There was no reason. They couldn't run the ball with ATN anyway, and uh, they, they stopped running it all together at that point. So it was a little bit skewed that all they did pretty much was throw the football in the second half. Uh, Steve Hellwagen is with us. He covers the Buckeyes for 247sports.com. Let's talk about that championship game. Obviously, the Buckeyes won't let us know the, the full injury status of Justin Fields, but how healthy do you expect them to be for Monday night's game? Well, you know, there are some indications that there could be more positive COVID tests coming down the pike for them, and they may be without one or – they've been without one or two starters for really the last three games or so. Michigan State, Northwestern, and Clemson, they had a couple guys each game that ordinarily would be starters that have had to sit out, and so we'll have to wait and see if that's going to be the case again. Uh, they miss Zach Harrison, a defensive end, who's kind of an impact player. He did not play against Clemson, and they were able to, you know, mine the fort without him. It would be great if he's able to come back. Obviously, Olave did not play against Northwestern and came back against Clemson, and he was a godsend. You know, whatever he ended up with, six catches for almost 130 yards and two touchdowns. I don't have names, and I can't speculate, you know, necessarily about uh, – who might miss the game, but let's just assume that they're going to be down two or three more guys, different guys perhaps, uh, for this game. And if that's the case, you know, that's the great thing about Ohio State and Alabama Clemson is that they've all recruited at such a high level with deep classes each of the last four years that you take a five-star out of the starting lineup, you should have a four-star ready to go right in there and, and not have too much drop-off. So, you know, it was kind of a sad thing this year with the limited number of games that they played and even the games that they did get played, they didn't have many blowouts. They had blowout with Nebraska at the beginning, the blowout with Michigan State on the road, but you didn't get a chance to see a lot of those young guys get to play. The rest of the games all kind of went down to the wire. You know, it is a little bit of a question, the depth, but uh, some positions it's good. 
other positions maybe not as good and uh, you just have to go with the guys you got that's all you can do this is the offshoot of the 2020 season i know the calendar now says 2021 and we're still dealing with COVID, and we'll be for a few more months you know maybe the entire calendar year of 2021 we'll still have to make allowances for it but if this is all it's going to be then hey you did the best you could you got there they are playing with house money guys they got the clemson thing off their back they are now considered a top two or three program again you know it, win the national championship, my goodness, that would be huge. You never poo-poo a chance to win a national championship, but at the same time, you can only do what you can only do. Uh, you know, to play another huge sledgehammer game 10 days after the last one is a lot to ask. So we'll see. Uh, they're going to give it their best shot and let the chips fall where they may. How do they match up against Bama? Uh, what are the keys to this game from the Buckeyes' standpoint? Well, you look at the AP All-American team, and Alabama had five guys on offense on the first team. The quarterback, Jones, the running back, Harris, the wide receiver, Devontae Smith. I think a couple of the linemen are on that first team as well. And then they had Patrick Sertain, a cornerback, on the other side, who was a first-team All-American. Ohio State had a couple first-team All-Americans, Wyatt Davis, offensive lineman, Sean Wade at uh, at corner. Haskell Garrett may have been a second-team pick at defensive tackle, but that gives you an idea. I think you use those things as a gauge, and I, I think they're skewed a little bit because Alabama did get to play an 11-game season, whereas Ohio State only got to play a six-game season before those teams were selected, and their guys' numbers don't you know match up. I mean, their quarterback threw for 4,000 yards, and Fields was probably in the high – you know, thousands around 2,000 in six or seven games or whatever he ended up with. If you follow what I'm saying, he doesn't have the volume of attempts and yards that, that somebody else might have to match up with. I would say the quarterback uh, duel is about even. I think Fields, if he's healthy, which is a huge if, is every bit as good as Jones. The running back situation, Harris, you might give him a nod just because Sermon's kind of a Johnny-come-lately type situation. We know about uh, Devontae Smith at wide receiver and how great he is, he's probably the best receiver who will be on the field. But Olave and Wilson are 1A and 1B, you know. I mean, they're right there, too. Absolutely. They've done some amazing, amazing things. I mean, you could just put the tape on and watch their highlight film. You know, if they played 11 or 12 games, I don't know that their numbers would look quite like his because he is the featured receiver for Alabama and gets the lion's share whereas those two guys, you know, are so far out in front with Ohio State. At one point here recently, they both had over 30 catches and nobody else had more than 10. So that'll tell you how heavily and how what it meant when Olave didn't play, what that meant. It was like you you know, you took uh, one of Field's security blankets away from him. That was a reason why he struggled a little bit. They're mirror images of each other, guys. The only areas these two teams really don't measure up is pass defense. I think both of them are a little suspect in terms of pass defense. So I think it comes down to which front can get in the face of the quarterback and uh, impact the quarterback. Ohio State successfully did that against Lawrence. It was kind of spotty in previous games. So uh, if Alabama's offensive line wins that battle up front, then Alabama may win the game. It's going to be a great game. It's going to be a high-scoring game. I understand fully why Alabama's favored. You know, their body of work is complete. You know, 12 games, that's what you want to see out of a team. Uh, Ohio State, in some respects, still, you would say untested, but they beat the number two-ranked team in the last game. 
I understand completely why Alabama is favored, but I'm not ruling out the idea that Ohio State can't steal this one one way or the other. Please explain to us, like, you've mentioned already that this team reminds you of the 2014 group with Urban Meyer in charge. How so? Just, I'm curious. You're getting that feel that it might be that Cinderella story all over again and that they can pull off this upset against the number one team in the land. Well, I think it starts with Ryan Day. He's a great leader of men, and uh, he has worked for some outstanding head coaches over the years and different people who have shown him how you assemble a team, how you build a program, how you recruit. And I think that uh, the, the players would run through a brick wall for him. He's been there. You know, you think about the sacrifice for several months. He lived outside of his kind of in quarantine from his family so that uh, they wouldn't infect him and he wouldn't infect them, you know, just to, just to give Ohio State the best chance and then he ended up contracting it, and he missed the uh, Michigan State game. The sacrifice all the coaches have made kind of set the tone for this. Then you look at the players. Sean Wade and Wyatt Davis didn't need to play one down this year, but when the season was reinstated, wild horses couldn't keep them away from playing uh, this season for the Buckeyes. That will just, and neither of those guys are from Ohio. Wyatt Davis is from California, and Sean Wade is from Jacksonville, Florida. You know, they're not Ohio State dyed in the wool, grew up with a gray helmet, you know, on their head, you know, with the Buckeye leaves and all that. But because of the brotherhood and the culture that is in this program, that's what makes it a special place. And we see great leadership. As I mentioned, Jonathan Cooper on defense, Tuff Borland, Pete Werner, uh, Sean Wade, all on defense. And then uh, over on offense, you know, you talk about uh, the offensive line, Josh Myers, the center. Jeremy Ruckert and uh, Luke Farrell, the tight ends, who each caught touchdowns in that last game. They're great leaders. And then uh, Fields, it just goes without saying, uh, he's kind of a cut above. You know, where Haskins, the guy who left here a few years ago, you know, showed, you know, in second year with Washington, some issues in terms of those intangibles. I don't foresee any issue in any regard from Fields. He is a professional that handles his business. And I think any team that ends up with him, uh, I'm not stumping for him to go ahead of Lawrence because I, I don't study it that closely. I'm not a, I'm not a draft guru, but, uh, you know, if, if somebody tells me Lawrence, who's, who has the bona fides tells me Lawrence should be number one, I believe it. But Fields is right there, too. Uh, you've got great leaders, and that's why this team's in this position. What kind of imprint has Ryan Day had on the Buckeyes ever since he took over for Urban Meyer? Well, you know, he was thrust into a tough situation, and you got to go back. You know, when they lost to Clemson after the uh, 2016 season in the playoff, 31 to nothing, and couldn't generate any offense, Urban Meyer decided that he had to make some changes, and he basically got rid of Tim Beck, the quarterback's coach, and uh, Ed Warner, who was the uh, line coach and the offensive coordinator, and uh, had a little bit of a house cleaning on the offensive side of the ball. He brought in. Ryan Day to be the offensive coordinator and the quarterback's coach and things really took off with Barrett that season and then huge numbers with Haskins the following year in uh, 2018 and then uh, Fields now 2019 and 2020 I mean they got the, the transfer Fields you know people will say oh Day had Fields land in his lap well Fields came to Ohio State to play for Day because he saw what he had done with Haskins you know that that was kind of the way that all went down 
and it's been an amazing two-year run for him, including the three games he coached for Urban Meyer in 2018. He's now 23-1 and as the head coach, and the one loss was to Clemson last year, and they came back this year and beat them. You know, it kind of speaks for itself, and, and maybe that was a knock on him that, that when they got into a playoff-type situation, how were they going to do with a, a coach giving up a decade of experience to Dabo Sweeney? Well, this year it wasn't a problem. They, they pulled off the wins. Now he's going up against, you know, the, the greatest coach of our generation, you know, Nick Saban. Uh, and, you know, what's that going to look like this week? Are they going to outcoach Nick Saban and Alabama and Sarkeesian? I doubt it. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a, a stalemate. It's going to be, you know, chess pieces. And uh, it's going to be fun to watch and see how they, they do it on such short notice. There's only uh, a one-week lead time up to this game. And, again, it's about the culture. You know, these guys work really hard at what they do. They they uh, signed another great class that's ranked first or second, depending on the rankings, uh, here in December for the 2021 high school graduates and uh, already have the number one class uh, halfway lined up right now for 2022. And they've got quarterbacks stacked up like cordwood. They've got two guys on campus who are freshmen. They've got uh, Kid McCord coming from uh, Pennsylvania in 2021. And uh, this kid, uh, uh, Ewers, from Texas, who's putting up record-setting numbers right now in the playoffs uh, as a high school junior. Kids are, are beating down the door to play for him. I think that says it all. He's built a winner or, or taken, you know, every head coach at Ohio State uh, has taken it to a, to a new level. Cooper got him back in the top 25 and the top 15, and then Trestle won the championship, and Meyer won the championship and kept him in the top three or four every year, and now here's Day, you know, trying to trying to win a championship on his own this week. Is this Ryan Day's dream job, or do you think he's going to entertain the NFL if they look in his direction? You know, that's a great question. He has experience as a college assistant and uh, a few years as an NFL assistant. He worked uh, for uh, Chip Kelly, I think, with the Eagles and the 49ers. And uh, I know neither of those situations worked out the way, you know, anybody wanted them to, I suppose. You know, does he burn to be an NFL head coach? Would uh, NFL teams consider him after only two years as a college head coach? You know, I don't know. I, that That's interesting. And, 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 again, you know, it only takes one team to offer you seven, eight, ten million to to go there. He's going to be making about that much money after this season at Ohio State. They're going to probably rip up his contract that pays him in the four to five million dollar range now and and uh, make him one of the highest paid coaches in football. I would think after this season, because all the indicators are there. He and his wife Nina, they have uh, young kids. Uh, they they bounced around quite a bit. I think they like the stability in Columbus, and I really could see him staying there for a few years. Now, is that five years? Is that ten years? I don't know, but uh, I really think that the potential is there for him to be, you know, an impact head coach at Ohio State for a good long time. He's recruiting outstanding players, so I'm uh, I'm I'm excited to see you know what the next few years bring at Ohio State based on the the talent he's starting to assemble. Speaking of Urban Meyer, there are rumors that you know connect him to the Jaguars job. Do you think he will succeed in the NFL? Well, that's a great question, and I, I I wonder about his health. First of all, you know he was driven out of college coaching it seems because he had a cyst. 
you know, on his his head and and was creating headaches and different things. And I don't know if his health situation has been alleviated. I know he enjoys his work with the Fox television and flying to Los Angeles or flying to game sites each week and, uh, you know, doing the work with them. So I am interested to see if he is truly serious about this. Uh, They and their family are pretty well established here in Columbus. He lives on the Muirfield Village Golf Course, which is where they play the Memorial Tournament every year in the PGA Tour. And uh, they've got a son who's uh, playing, actually, I think both football and baseball at the University of Cincinnati. I think he's in his second or third year there. And then uh, they have two daughters who I believe both are now married. Uh, They have some grandchildren. Uh, his son-in-law, Corey Dennis, is the quarterback's coach at Ohio State. Uh, you know, would he go with him if he goes to become a head coach somewhere? That's an interesting uh, situation as well. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, you know, they are great family people, and really that means the world to both he and his wife, Shelly, that, uh, that they're so close-knit and, and can live nearby and, and, and have everybody uh, nearby and everything. So I don't know. If Jacksonville is the right place, the right time for him, or if his health would dictate it. And the last thing I think about is that he's just so driven to win. You know, they would have a 10 and 2 season and he'd be pulling his hair out because it just wasn't acceptable to him. I think if he would go like 3 and 13, you know, how would he handle that? I, I just I don't know. And, and Jacksonville seems like it's it's never been any good for as long as we've been following football. It's a tough situation if that's where he's going, but uh, sure he could be he could be successful in anything he wants to do. He's driven and and that type of thing. But you know, getting from point A to point B, going to be a lot of hard work put in to make that happen. Steve, tell our listeners where they can find your work. I'm at Bucknuts.com, uh, 26th or 27th year full time covering Ohio State football, and was uh, kind of on the periphery as a student and different things prior to that. And uh, Bucknuts.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network, and on Twitter, at Steve Hellwagon with one L and uh, E-N on the end. Uh, just check it out on Twitter. We have all kinds of stuff, Ohio State football and recruiting and previewing the big game next Monday. Thanks for being with us. All right, guys. Take care. Enjoy your trip to Miami, Steve. Oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, we heard what Steve Hellwagon said about the Buckeyes, and he previewed the the national championship game. Let's do our quick breakdown. Alabama, the number one team in the land, facing off against number three, Ohio State Buckeyes, who just demolished Clemson in the Rose Bowl. Justin Fields had a coming-out party. Mr. Hunt has been saying, hey, wait a second. If Fields has a pretty good game, there's a conversation there. Well, he did. He threw for six touchdowns against Clemson's defense. That wasn't BYU, you know? That wasn't, you know, Vanderbilt. That wasn't, no Northwestern. That wasn't, you know, Iowa. That was Clemson. He really just had a coming out party. Are you a believer in your Buckeyes against Alabama, or are you taking the Crimson Tide? I I have to go with Alabama. I mean, Alabama's offense is just electric. What I I see this game kind of playing out is I see this being an offensive shootout. And when you play Alabama in an offensive shootout, Alabama wins. That's the that's the trump card. So I'm going to give this game to Alabama. 
All right, I'm going to play a little devil's advocate. I'm not saying I'm picking Ohio State, but the thing is, Alabama's secondary is not the best. I mean, based on the names, Patrick Sartain, Joby, they've got some pieces in there, but Ohio State can score points. They can stretch the field because Ohio State has an advantage at wide receiver as well with Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, even the tight ends came out to play against Clemson. And I'm sure Ryan Day is going to use that card. He's going to use the tight ends a little bit more against Alabama because we haven't seen that the entire year. I think Alabama is vulnerable and Ohio State can score because Ohio State has got Trey Sermon running wild and they've got Justin Fields that had probably his best game of his career, even though he he had a terrific sophomore season, but that was the best overall game that I've seen, maybe from a quarterback, this year against a really good team. What do you think? This is going to be a close game, right? I don't know. I mean, I, I really think this Alabama team is really underestimated. We've come to just expect Alabama. We know what Alabama is. The fact of the matter is, is that this is the, these these are actually more of glory days than 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 of three or four years past of Alabama football. We are in the golden times of of Alabama football, and I mean I I can't speak to the Bear Bryant days and all that, but I'm talking about of the Nick Saban era. I mean Nick Saban is not hasn't peaked yet. He's not on the back nine. I mean he is he is still in the prime of his coaching career. Yeah, Saban has already won five national championships at Alabama, and he won one at LSU. He has a chance to win his sixth title to tie the great Bear Bryant, as you said, the legendary coach that has six on his resume. Incredible numbers, even in today's day and age of parity, of expecting to have Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, Oklahoma in the end, you still have to win those games. You still have to get through those tougher opponents. I'm also taking Alabama, but I think it's going to be a close game. I think it's going to be a very close game. I think it's going to be within a touchdown. Uh, Bovada, they have Alabama minus eight versus Ohio State and Miami. So I think I'm going to take the Buckeyes based on that spread. But I think Alabama eventually wins this game. Speaking of Alabama Crimson Tide, they've got a lot to cheer about. There were four Heisman finalists in New York. We had two from Alabama, Mac Jones, the quarterback, wide receiver Devontae Smith. And then we had Kyle Trask, the quarterback from Florida, and Trevor Lawrence uh, from Clemson. The winner of this whole thing was the wide receiver, Devontae Smith. I'm just really glad and happy for it that we can see a wide receiver win this award in 2021. Yeah, I, I, I echo that. I, I'm very happy to see that a wide receiver can still win this award. And I, I think it was the right guy to win this award. I mean, you know, this Alabama team wouldn't be where it is without Devonta Smith. And you can't always give it to the quarterback of the best team. You just can't. And you know, Mac Jones is a good quarterback. You know, he may he may be a first round guy, but at the same time, I mean, you know, give it give it to another position. I I didn't think. I mean, when you look at each of these can these quarterback candidates, there there's a, there's a legitimate knock against them. I mean, Kyle Trask struggled against Oklahoma. 
Mac Jones is not a superior quarterback. I mean, it's just he's a, he's a good quarterback, but he's not a superior quarterback. He's not a Heisman level quarterback. And then you got Trevor Lawrence, who, who who I think it will be a great NFL prospect and has had a great career at Clemson. Don't think that you know his his struggles in certain games and you know him being out with COVID doesn't hurt him in this. And he came in second place and he deserves second place. But really, Devonta Smith was the guy who deserved to win this award. And Smith just dominated the entire year. Alabama relied on him ever since Jalen Waddle went down. He was the guy. Defenses knew who they had to stop in the passing game, and they still couldn't do it. And this is the first time a wide receiver has won the award since 1991 when Desmond Howard, the great Michigan receiver, took that award. I didn't think that I would see it in my lifetime again that a wide receiver takes it, but... Smith had 105 receptions this year for 1,641 yards, and he scored 20 touchdowns. I mean, that's it, it was amazing to see. He, he dominated. And what I love about the kid is when he went up there to accept his award, he's really humble. He doesn't come off as a wide receiver. He looks like a real genuine kid for a guy that plays at Alabama. And with Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs leaving for the NFL draft, Smith came back to win the national championship. And he's got a chance to do that on Monday night in Miami against Ohio State. I just love that. We usually see wide receivers. They're prima donnas. They've got a bravado. They're brash. You know, you just, you don't like these guys when they give interviews. Smith had a short interview. He remained humble. He thanked his family his coaches, his teammates, and it was just really refreshing to see that. I, I don't think Devonta Smith had a had a speech prepared, but I mean, he said the right things and he was humble. I have to admit, like when I was watching the Heisman Trophy ceremony, I, you know I'm a big lover of college football, but it just, sometimes that Heisman ceremony can be a little bit too it just it just doesn't feel very real you know they kind of say all the you know they have Nick Saban go up there and he says you know these people are exemplary men and they're the best men I've ever coached and you know the next time they you know an Alabama guy goes <laughs> goes to the Heisman Trophy ceremony you know that he's going to say the same thing about them and Trevor Lawrence you know it it just it just felt all it, it felt all canned it felt like it was like um, you know, an agent, an agent had was telling them what to say, or a PR guy was telling them what to say, and I, I, I wanted to see something a little bit more authentic. And you know, Devonta Smith, I mean, he, you know, looked a little more authentic. I mean, I did see some authenticity from Kyle Trask in the sense that you know he he looked angry, and I think he knew he didn't win, and he was angry, and he didn't want to be up there. It's really refreshing to see that, especially when you're a star wide receiver and you're not getting, you know, the the Randy Moss, the T.O., the the A.B. type of vibe from a kid that's projected to be a first round guy that's going to go somewhere in the top 15, top 20. I, I really enjoyed watching him. It was just it was short, sweet and to the point without much drama. Yeah, the Heisman is like a, a sappy movie. It's like a Titanic. It's like an Ed Sheeran song. <laughs> you know? like, I mean, that's, that, that's what it feels like when, when it comes down to it. Everybody says the right thing, and you, you might you know, shed a tear in the end. 
All right, the best story in college football this year was the Coastal Carolina Chanticleers. They were the Cinderella team that everyone started to root for. And to help us recap this season, we bring in Alan Blondin, who covers Coastal Carolina football for the Sun News. Alan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. In the beginning of the season, did you ever think in your wildest dreams that this team would win 11 games overall and would go undefeated in the Sun Belt? Um, yeah, no, uh, you, if you basically just looked at their track record coming into the season, um, their fourth year in the, in the Sun Belt after moving up from the FCS level, and they'd uh, been two, they went two and six in each of the first three years in the conference. They were also picked to finish last in a coach's poll uh, preseason, so the expectations within the conference weren't great. I knew they'd be a little bit better. I knew they had some guy, key guys coming back from injury the previous year. They got hit with some pretty, uh, a lot of injuries in 2019. So I knew they'd be a little better, but never, uh, I don't think anybody saw this coming, even, the, I don't know if the team, the coaches, and what kind of changed the expectations early in the year was uh, Coach Jamie Chadwell starting a redshirt freshman who had only played two games and a handful of snaps the previous year over a couple of juniors who had each started at least eight games, and it turns out that kid uh, was a superstar. What was the most memorable game for Coastal Carolina this season? Man, that's a hard one because there were a lot. I would have to say the BYU game with everything that went into that, all the publicity it received because college game day was coming to Coastal. They were supposed to play Liberty. Liberty canceled due to covid then they had this crazy, uh, you know, 48 hours before the game. The two teams agree to play, and BYU has to travel to Coastal. They, they end up being able to keep game day there, have game day, play the game that afternoon, and then it comes down to a stop at the one-yard line with BYU ranked eighth in the country by the AP at the time. It was a massive uh, turn of fortunes for the Chanticleers. How was this defense able to hold Zach Wilson and that Cougars offense to 17 points, I believe they scored, right? It looked like BYU was this well-oiled machine on offense, and I don't think anybody thought that, first of all, Coastal Carolina would win, and then they would hold BYU to 17 points. How were they able to do it? Yeah, well, yeah, it ended up being 22 to 17. And Zach Wilson did look like uh, uh, a top five draft pick or something on that last drive. Uh, drove him from, I think they were they were inside their 10, and he got him all the way to the one in like 50 seconds uh, with no timeouts. Coastal has a pass rush. They've got Teron Jackson. Uh, they've got Jeffrey Gunner on the ends. They've got uh, C.J. Brewer on the inside. All of They had the best pass rush in the Sun Belt. You know, they were able to throw him off his game a little. I also think Zach Wilson, honestly, maybe didn't play his best game. Um, you know, and there were a lot of circumstances leading up to that game where they uh, that might have led to that, where the team didn't perform quite as well as they should have. But, um, I mean, Coastal's defense performed all year, really, uh, until they started suffering some injuries late in the season against, you know, Troy and then the bowl game. They weren't 100%. Prior to that, they were very, very good. They were really strong on the defensive lines and, and linebacker positions. And uh, I think it was a combination of uh, rattling uh, Zach Wilson a bit and uh, him not having his best game. Right before halftime, 
uh, of that game. You know the question that I'm going to ask you. Zach Wilson throws a pick. On the interception return, Jeffrey Gunner decided to take Wilson's head off. And it wasn't only the first time. He did it a second time after that on the return. And then they went after each other, I think, in the third quarter as well when Gunner was uh, he was penalized, right, for shoving him when Wilson was already out of balance. What did you think of that specific play? Do you think it was a dirty play? Well, it was certainly uh... – along the lines of dirty. I mean, it was, for some reason, there was no flag thrown on the play, which was um, somewhat amazing as far as the actual play, because they, they did double team. It was he and uh, Teddy Gallagher, the linebacker, they double teamed them on the block. And, you know, it was more of a, you know, a wrestling suplex on the second one there than it was a block. You know, they, they certainly uh, took their opportunity to rough them up a bit. You know, wasn't anything that was going to cause an injury uh, other than maybe a concussion, but it was it was on the edge of dirty, and uh, it may have in the end helped Coastal win the game. Let's talk about the overtime thriller to end the season. Why do you think this team fell short against Liberty in the bowl game? For one, Malik Willis played out of his mind. He had, you know, an amazing game. They really had no answer for him, and it was mainly his running and his, his rushing ability. I believe he scored three rushing touchdowns. Then the second half there, he basically was dropping back and just looking for a place to run. They they weren't even running an offense at that point. They, he was just dropping back and trying to find some open spaces and run. And Coastal really struggled to slow him down. That was mainly the difference. The overtime period, they stopped him. Uh, Liberty had the ball first. Coastal stopped him and had the ball, and that was their shot. I mean, they had a chance to win after trailing the whole game. Uh, there was a questionable non-call of a pass interference that would have given Coastal first down around the 10 and that would have probably changed the game and either you know essentially guaranteed their field goal or given them a chance to score a touchdown they ended up throwing three incompletions and having that field goal blocked and that was the end of that a number of things but not being able to stop Malik Willis uh, was the main thing has the reputation of this program changed around Myrtle Beach Oh, undoubtedly. I think it's changed everywhere. Um, it's changed uh, nationally. It's changed in Myrtle Beach. You know, again, they were, you know, they were moving up the uh, FBS level, hadn't had great success, had yet to have a winning season. You know, there were some questions uh, about how long it would take them to, to be successful. And they went from three consecutive losing seasons to 11-0 and 0 and uh, uh, top 10 ranking nationally. So, yeah, it's uh, – Chadwell just signed a contract extension through 2027 that probably triples his pay, basically. And, you know, the expectations are different now. So the outlook on the program itself is a lot different now. Could we see Jamie Chadwell go somewhere else, like rise the ranks as a coach? Uh, If he has another year like this, it's basically inevitable. You know, Coastal just doesn't, like most group of fives or, you know, independents, at the FBS level, they don't have the money to try to match dollar for dollar with a group with a power five team. When power five teams come calling, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to stop them. You know, you can put in the, the buyouts, but you know, the, a couple power five teams are paying just fire coaches this year and are paying $20 million just to have them not coach. Coastal's struggling to pay somebody a million dollars to coach a year. Yeah. It's inevitable. It's, it's just all a matter of whether he has, uh, another year like this back-to-back or even within the next two years 
I think the only thing that kept him from going this time was this is his only this was only his third year as an FBS coach. I mean, he's had success everywhere he's been, but to only have three years at the FBS level as a head coach, that might have kept a few places from hiring him and looking at some more established FBS coaches, even as assistants that have a lot more experience at this level. Alan Blondin is here with us. He uh, covers Coastal Carolina football for the Sun News and in Myrtle Beach. Is this team staying intact for the most part, or are a lot of guys declaring for the NFL draft? Yeah, a lot of guys are coming back. Um, I know of a handful already of the seniors that have opted to come back and contacted them directly through social media, and a lot of them told me they are coming back. They're losing to Ron Jackson, uh, which, you know, they, they have no choice. He's, he's going to be a draft pick and potentially high as an edge rusher. Um, their running back, T.J. Marable, is declared, but they also have a couple guys that were very productive in the backfield anyway that, uh, you know, we're looking to probably get some more time anyway. You know, they're losing to Ron, but a lot of their defensive guys, a lot of their linebackers, one of their offensive linemen that was a key, they're all coming back. Um, Grayson McCall, of course, is back, their quarterback. Their top receiver is back. I believe their tight end, who's a potential draft pick as a junior, intimated that he was coming back and hasn't declared. Isaiah Likely. So um, they look like they're going to be largely the same team in 2021 that they were in 2020. Can this team be nearly as good next year? It was such a magical year. You know, it, the crazy thing is one loss is all of a sudden going to be disappointing to everybody, you know, including the players. They Again, they're going to have all the pieces back for the most part with a few with, with some additions. You know, the table is set for them to do the same thing. It's just a matter of how disappointed do they get when they have a setback or are they able to just keep their focus as well as they were this year and have another magical season. It, it's really even with, all, with the same players. Even in the NFL, when you return the same players, it's hard to replicate uh, a crazy successful season like they've had. Uh, it remains to be seen, but they'll have the pieces in place. It would be nice if they can do it back to back. I mean, if if they do it back to back, you can you can start talking about them as as the next Appalachian State or Louisiana program in the Sun Belt. That that would be quite a feat for this program. They can replicate what they did this year again back-to-back years they're now they're starting to reach the UCF level of you know being on a national stage uh year in year out they did get to the top of the Sun Belt Appalachian State's not going anywhere Louisiana's probably not going anywhere Napier stayed even though he was a candidate at a couple places so you know getting through the Sun Belt on stage next year is going to be just as difficult as it was this year they'll start with that and see where they can go Alan, you're a big football fan, and we just we wanted to get your thoughts on on the national championship game really quickly in in Miami, Alabama versus Ohio State. Who do you have in that game, and and why? Uh, I like Alabama. You know, I mean, I, I think they just have the most talent in the country. Ohio State's not far behind, though. They're going to have several guys drafted in the first round, and you'll, you'll that'll be evidence that they were loaded. But um, I just I like Alabama. I think they're a little bit more of a well-oiled machine. Haven't played a full season. I I don't doubt that it'll be a good game though. The way uh, Ohio State played against Clemson, but I give the edge to Alabama. Alan, please tell our listeners where they can find you. I'm sure the easiest place is on Twitter. I post all of my stories there. Uh, largely, their golf 
and Coastal Carolina related being in Myrtle Beach. But it's at Alan Blondin. My first name's A-L-A-N. Last name's Blondin, B-L-O-N-D-I-N. At Alan Blondin uh, on Twitter. Well, enjoy your off season, and I hope you um, able to to get out there on on the golf course. Oh, you you don't have to worry about that. I'll find my way out. There's a couple courses around, so I usually can stumble across one of them. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. All right, guys. Thank you. I wanted to get your last thought before we leave and get out of here. Texas just fired Tom Herman. He's out. He's going to be one happy man because he's going to get paid a buttload of money to not coach the Texas Longhorns. But everything is bigger in Texas. And the Longhorns decided to hire the next hot thing, the offensive coordinator from Alabama, Steve Sarkeesian. He is the new head coach at Texas. What do you think of this hire? Is this the right move? Ever since they fired Mac Brown, it seems like Texas has just kind of gone downhill. To be honest with you, I, I, I'd really rather a, a coach more on the upswing for Texas. You know, I just, Sarkeesian kind of went down to be Nick Saban's offensive coordinator. Um, and, you know, he did a great job as an offensive coordinator for the Alabama Crimson Tide. But, you know, he, he has some, he has a kind of a checkered past and, you know, he's failed at some big programs and, I think there are just more up-and-coming coaches and, you know, bigger things. I, I I do understand the reason for firing Tom Herman. The reason they fired Tom Herman is, is that Oklahoma has dominated the Big 12 over the last five years. It's been their conference. And, you know, the, I mean, if you're, if you're a booster for, you know, Texas or you're the AD for Texas, you are not okay with that. You are not complicit in Oklahoma winning the Big 12 every year. So I think that's why they made this move. I, I The hire is not who I would have gone with. Here's the reason why Sarkeesian got the job. He has a record of 46 and 35. That's not an overwhelming record. At Washington, he was an average head coach before he got that USC job, his dream job. During his first year with the USC Trojans, he went 9-4. and four, And then during the second year, he was let go because of some problems that he had off the field. And he's battled some demons with, you know, with alcohol. And he's mentioned that in interviews. He says that he's passed it and he's a better man for it. And I hope for the Longhorn's sake. But a lot of it has to do with developing quarterbacks. And we see what's... The Oklahoma program, you mentioned them. Lincoln Riley knows how to develop quarterbacks. And Steve Sarkeesian also has a knack for it. He's developed Mac Jones. He's developed Tua at Alabama. He has coached Jake Locker at Washington, Mark Sanchez, Matt Leiner, Cody Kessler. Uh, During his first year as the head coach, Cody Kessler threw for 39 touchdowns for the USC Trojans. Steve Sarkeesian knows offensive football, and he develops quarterbacks. He has a track record over the past, I would say, 20 years. And Texas needs to compete with Oklahoma. And they realize that, hey, we haven't developed quarterbacks in the past couple of years, even though we seem to have had some good ones, some promising guys. I think that's the reason why they brought in Sarkeesian, to compete with Lincoln Riley. And you know, if you hire a quarterback guru quarterbacks recruits will follow because they've seen your track record and if you can get a couple of quarterbacks in there that's half the battle 
Sarkeesian knows how to develop them, and therefore the Texas Longhorns are going to be on the upswing. I'm not saying Sarkeesian is the next Nick Saban. That's not what I'm saying. But he's going to be able to win games at Texas just because of his uh, ability to to coach offense and quarterbacks. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Blitzcast. We talked about a lot of stuff, and we'd like to thank a couple of our guests for coming on with us. Thank you for listening. Take care.